Hello and welcome. Um, um, I'm going to go ahead and call this episode number one of uh, Freedom is Scary. And uh, I think that's just a great name for for uh, you know the the live cast that, that I'd like to do. Um, this software is really cool. I enjoy doing it because people can watch live on YouTube or live on our, our Facebook page. And um, it's, it's just amazing to see how far technology has come. And at the same time, different than a regular you know, YouTube video like I had been doing, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to edit. And also people can ask questions or make comments at the same time. So if you have any questions, um, put them up. You might want to put an asterisk, asterisk or two beside them or, or make it in all caps so that I notice uh, the, the question. Um, so freedom is scary. What, what does that mean? First of all, that's just something that, that I've always liked to basically use in an argument that, you know, well, you know, you don't, um, if somebody says that, you know, well, it's, it's dangerous for you to engage in this act, you know, for, to exercise your constitutional rights. Um, for instance, the second amendment, um, or, or to do anything else, um, you know, to, to have freedom requires some element, some level of danger or, you know, threat to physical safety to somebody. Um, to be free to make the choice to, to drive a car without a seatbelt, ride a motorcycle without a helmet, to jump out of an airplane, and you just name it, it's going to involve some element of danger, if not to the person who's engaging in that act, then to somebody else. And the whole point of the, this phrase, freedom is scary, is it, it's sort of facetious. It's not that we should be afraid of freedom. It's to point out to people who don't quite understand that that's what it means to live in a free country is that we have to deal with people who are going to be scared or we may be scared sometimes ourselves. Uh, for instance, you know, if I want to have the right to to possess firearms, use firearms because you know, it might be necessary to use those firearms to defend my friends or family, um, to defend my life. Well, then I also have to be okay with maybe that guy down the street that I really, I really don't trust him. Um, and you know, he gets to to exercise the same rights. He gets to have firearms. He gets to to own an AR-15 or or a hundred AR-15s, um, all with um, thirty round magazines. Um, you know, maybe I'm kind. You know, maybe I think that guy's scary. And that's the whole point here is to to preserve, protect, and exercise those freedoms myself. I have to accept being scared, you know, sometimes. So that's the point. Freedom is scary. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, my uh, case with Michael Walker that's up at the Fourth Circuit right now. You know, everybody's calling the the police because there's a guy walking down the side of the road with a, a assault rifle or assault weapon. And in reality, it's safely strapped over his shoulder with the muzzle pointed in a safe direction with, with a sling with actually a backpack on top of it. 
and he's walking down the side of the road because he he suffers from epilepsy and doesn't have a driver's license and he's wanting to go coyote hunting. So that no doubt there, there are going to be Karens out there who will be scared at the sight of that. They will call 911. But the thing that Karen needs to understand is that, you know what, Karen, freedom is scary because Karen probably understands the 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 logic that she should be allowed to possess firearms to defend her home to in case somebody burglarizes her house and probably her husband has firearms, maybe her son. But she needs to accept or understand that that, you know, our rights, as I've said before, hopefully I get it right this time, our rights don't end where her fear begins. So freedom is a scary concept. And, and again, that's somewhat of a, of a sarcastic or a facetious term. And I didn't make it up. I, I can't remember exactly, you know, where I first heard it, but it kind of encapsulates everything that I do in my law practice and, and uh, engaging in all the civil rights stuff is that um, is ultimately we're, we're looking at going in front of a jury because I'm not a prosecutor, I'm, I'm a civil lawyer. So ultimately, if we file a lawsuit, we're looking at ending up before a jury of people. In federal civil rights cases, that's eight people, um, just random people, you, you, you never know who you get. In a West Virginia state case, a civil lawsuit, you only end up with six people on a jury. And then it's really unpredictable. So um, this video is about the statement that West Virginia Governor Jim Justice made yesterday, where he threatened what is essentially a travel ban. And I didn't listen to it live. I just cannot listen to it. And and like many of us, I'm, I'm busy. In fact, the only real time I have is, is just skipping my lunch break to do this right now. But he, I saw the headlines shortly thereafter, and I started getting some text messages and messages on Facebook saying, you know, can he do this? Can he do this? So the governor was threatening basically to, if, any, if anyone left the state and they came back into West Virginia, they'd be under um, a, a mandatory um a test for COVID-19 and a mandatory quarantine for 14 days. Okay. Well, we all know why he's saying he wants to do that. Now, obviously he he doesn't want anyone to, to leave the state, especially going towards any hot spots. And, uh, but you know, the, the more important question is, is does it matter that he wants to do that? Is that constitutional? And I'll explain that it absolutely is not uh, constitutional. Uh, first, let's just catch up to where, well, no, let's not even get there first. Uh, here's why it's unconstitutional. Um, in fact, the, the governor of Kentucky tried pretty much the same exact thing. Uh, in Kentucky, where is the case? In Kentucky, the the uh, 
what they called the travel ban was was actually it wasn't even as tyrannical as as justice is is wanting to do. And justice said, here's what he said, mandatory testing and quarantining when residents return to the state from out of state travel is on the table. Well, he's obviously just upset that people haven't been following the guidelines. Again, I encourage all businesses that are allowed to open to do so only if they can follow the guidelines to keep West Virginia safe. So they need to, you know, people obviously haven't been following the guidelines and he's wanting to further restrict people. So mandatory testing and quarantining. The first thing that pops into my mind is, all right, that's an unconstitutional search and seizure. I mean, if you're going to make it mandatory to test and quarantine, does that not imply that you're going to physically seize somebody, search somebody? That is a search and seizure. So either it's a a suggestion or a request, or it's something that's going to be forced basically at gunpoint because it will be enforced by police. Is that not a violation right there, if it actually occurs, of the Fourth Amendment? Absolutely. That, that is going to be, if I, leave the, if I leave the state, just talking theoretical terms here, if I leave the state and I come back over the border, I get stopped by a state trooper, and they say, all right, we have to test you, and then you know we have to make sure that you're going to comply with a 14-day quarantine. And I say, no. Um, no, I, I don't want to be tested. I don't consent. I want to keep on driving um, in the path that I was driving. So what happens then? So either the state trooper allows me to continue on my way, and uh, in which case there was a brief, you would call it really an investigatory detention, or he says, well, sir, please step out of the car. We're, we're going to have to to make you do this. At that point, you have a Fourth Amendment seizure or a search and seizure. It doesn't really matter whether it's a search or it's a seizure. It's it's a Fourth Amendment event. You have a traffic stop. You have a, an interaction with the government. And then you have um, the event in, instructing you that you're not free to leave. And at that point, if they really do test you forcibly, or they really do quarantine you, regardless of the logistics of how do they do it, there's no doubt that it would be a Fourth Amendment search and seizure. So then, you know, the Constitution says, well, they, they have to have a uh, probable cause and a warrant. So, you know, what is the is there probable cause um, that a crime was committed in front of that police police officer? And then we get into the whole argument of, well, what, what is the law that was violated? Can the governor pass laws? And then we're, we're all the way back in the circle to our original state level claim that this is a, there can be no law enacted by a governor without the involvement of the legislature. And since I first filed that case, uh, before the Supreme Court, even though we ultimately didn't win, it really did get people talking about the violation of our state constitution, um, the separation of powers requirement. 
because as I've said before, even the federal constitution does not have an express, which means it's written into it, doctrine of separation of powers. It's implied and the founders discussed it, but it's not actually written into it like, like it is in our state constitution. And really, since we filed that, you've seen challenges in other states, including Virginia, with the same exact arguments in them, the same principles. You've heard arguments from some of the politicians out there who are real patriots, not just in West Virginia, but in other states, who are arguing strongly that you know, the governors in many of these states are not allowed to pass laws without their legislature. And so then we, we're all the way back to that argument of, well, the determination of whether there's probable cause to, to test me or quarantine me or to even get a warrant to do so if assuming a warrant occurred. And, and again, these are sort of law school theoretical scenarios where you're thinking about what could go wrong. And, you know, that's what you do when you when you train in, in the law is you 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 want to think about all these potential things that could go wrong, all these scenarios. So so, uh, you know, we're all the way back to, you know, is there you know, can there be probable cause on a law that, that a law was violated if the law was passed unconstitutionally by a governor? And obviously, my opinion would be no. But, you know, we'd have to see what would happen. See, that's why I've been saying eventually somebody's, some court is going to have to decide the separation of powers issue. Well, our Supreme Court is going to have to decide it one way or the other, because if any of this stuff occurs, it's all going to, it's, it's any criminal prosecution that occurs is going to turn on this stuff. Um, hey, John, check out my case case law referenced in my video, Red Truck Series number seven. Okay, I will take a look at that after after the live cast here. I appreciate that. So the, looking at the Kentucky case, um, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but so the Kentucky governor tried the same exact thing. Not the same exact, but it was pretty close. And he ended up getting shot down. So Chris Wiest, who's a... A private lawyer in Kentucky has kind of been doing what you know what I've been doing in challenging Jim Justice's ex executive orders. He's filed numerous lawsuits against the governor in Kentucky, and and he's been way busier than I have. He's been doing a lot more than I have, and uh, I wish that I could do more. And uh, you know, he was able to do a GoFundMe for his big lawsuit in state court over there to cover the expenses and legal fees. And, you know, one of the things I'd like to do is check with the West Virginia State Bar and see if, if, if it would be okay under our ethics rules if, if I were to set up a GoFundMe and uh, include just a bunch of plaintiffs, um, well-situated plaintiffs, and do another state court challenge along with legislators who want to be a part of the suit. And again, I'll re-extend my offer to Senator Manchin since he he uh, seemed to be supportive of our separation of powers agreement that if he wants to be a plaintiff, um, you know, we could set our, our differences aside and, and I would represent him to challenge uh, governor justice if he wants in. Um, did he get shot down in the literal sense? No, no, he didn't. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically. His, 
executive order got shot down by the federal district court judge in the Eastern District of Kentucky. Now, in federal court, you have district court, circuit circuit court of appeals, and then you have the Supreme Court of the United States. So mostly we're dealing in federal court at the trial court level, and that's the district courts. In West Virginia, we've got a northern district and a southern district. So any federal lawsuit that you file in West Virginia starts out at that level. And these and these these judges, they will issue written opinions that looks, you know, it looks like an appellate decision. Sometimes it'll be 30, 40 pages long. And they really go through the law a lot. They have uh, law clerks. And uh, so that's what happened in this case is, is Chris had had sued the Kentucky governor on a number of challenges. And these were really the federal court challenges. And uh, I think I think one of the claims was the right to the First Amendment right to to gather and petition your government and to protest and things of that nature. And that didn't make it through in this particular lawsuit on the federal level. But the the objections to the so-called travel ban did. And the federal district court judge um, completely, as I said, shot down the Kentucky travel ban. And if you look at uh, this at my blog site, the civilrightslawyer.com, I posted some excerpts out of that, that opinion and also quoted some of it so that you could read exactly why it was found under federal law to be in violation of the federal constitution. Um, and all right. So the Kentucky ban, it, it wasn't a complete travel ban on, on interstate travel, which means just going in between states. So like justice is talking about here, but it limited the reasons that Kentucky residents could leave the state and required that any person who left the state without a valid reason be self-quarantined for 14 days after their return. So what they had ordered in Kentucky was actually less restrictive than what Governor Justice had threatened to do yesterday, though maybe it was just a threat. He hadn't thought it out yet, or maybe maybe it would turn turn out to be less restrictive than he was threatening. But you know what? He He's been somewhat consistent with his threats. If you recall, he threatened the the mask law before he did it. And, um, you know, that's when I said, okay, go ahead and skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. And he did, but he did it in sort of a half-assed way. He really didn't put any enforcement or sanctions behind it. He just let the businesses deal with it. And I think, I think that's what he said yesterday too, is, is, is you business owners need to really start policing your customers. But you know what? Is that the job of government to tell business owners how to operate their business? And is that the job of business owners to police or operate or tell their customers how to live their lives, what to do? Of course it's not. But but uh, you know that's what these governors have been doing. So the, the Kentucky restrictions on travel in and out of their state were less restrictive than what has been threatened yesterday by the West Virginia governor. And then the, those Kentucky restrictions, they were found to be unconstitutional. So why? So the 
the uh, Kentucky law said that people were only, their citizens were only permitted to leave the state for employment reasons or to receive or provide health care, to obtain groceries or other needed supplies, or when they were required to do so under a court order. And that brings up another rabbit hole. So where I am, the Greenbrier Valley area, you know, we are closer to UVA and their wonderful hospital than we are to WVU's hospitals who are run by our COVID czar, who really, I mean, they, they don't necessarily have that great of a reputation. They're nowhere on the same uh, page as, as UVA or, or what you could find, um, you know, in at Johns Hopkins or uh, even down at UNC. I mean, WVU does not have the greatest reputation for the best medical treatment. In my opinion, from what I've heard, just my opinion, um, we go, I know for my family, we had to go to UVA to get medical treatment. Um, you know, when my wife had sh shoulder surgery, we first tried to go to WVU. We talked to one of their, you know, fancy uh, um, orthopedic surgeons who, who uh, couldn't be bothered to spend more than five minutes with my wife. And he said, ah, oh, you, you know, you just, you just need some physical therapy. And uh, so he, he ordered Julie for six weeks or whatever it was of physical therapy. But she knew that the, the shoulder wasn't right. So I said, you know, we just got to get the hell out of West Virginia. Get out of this medical system. Let's go into Virginia. So we went to UVA. They took an MRI there. And the doctor the, the uh, sports medicine orthopod, he just couldn't believe it. And he spent a lot of time with her. He was a wonderful man. This was on a Thursday. He gathered all the students around him, the other doctors, the other orthopedic surgeons. And this is a teaching hospital as well. And they just gathered around and looked at her, at her MRI. It was, it was, uh, it was like snapped in three places and her bicep muscle was technically hanging by a thread. And they couldn't believe that WVU just dismissed this as, um, you know, something she just needed PT for. That was a Thursday. She went into surgery Monday morning at UVA. And I can't tell you how great the doctors, the nurses, everybody was at, at UVA. So we get great medical treatment from where I am only two and a half uh, hours away. And, and why, you know, I'm, I don't necessarily want to go to West WVU four hours away where I think the, the treatment sucks. So now the governor is going to tell me that I can't get or my family can't get medical treatment that we're paying for in the state of Virginia. I don't think so. And, and that's just one of, you know, again, like I said, that's a rabbit hole, but we could come up with a thousand of these. Um, so it, He's worried about his numbers and and uh, and uh, controlling everything, but he's not putting any thought into what the people want or what their rights are. So the Kentucky case, going back to that, said they could leave for medical treatment, which apparently justice wouldn't allow, at least not without being quarantined. And uh, let's see. So they could obtain groceries or supplies or when, whenever they were quite required to do so by a court order. So they could also leave Kentucky to assist in caring for the elderly, a minor, dependents, or, or vulnerable or disabled persons. So 
Chris Wiest in Kentucky sued in federal court claiming that that was a violation of what's called the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, we don't have to get into what the 14th Amendment is because it's highly complicated, but it's the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And a lot of our challenges as lawyers to state government, to state governmental action, a lot of that falls under the 14th Amendment. And uh, because originally, re remember that the, the Bill of Rights, the states wanted a Bill of Rights to stop the federal government from violating the rights of, of, of their people because we were originally 13 separate colonies. There was, there was no requirement at that time that we were going to be one country or that we had to be one country. Virginia didn't have to agree to attach itself in any way to um, New York. You know, it's a very different state. People see things very differently. And in the end, we all agreed to enter this contract called the Constitution. We all ratified it. We argued about it for a number of years before entering it. And a lot of the states, especially our state, which then was Virginia, our leaders, such as Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, George Mason, James Monroe, and all these guys were really, um, they were in favor of protecting, you know, the, the state rights of Virginia citizens. We didn't want to give up our rights and hand it over to this federal government, which could grow too large and too tyrannical. And that's, again, another that's another uh, whole video right there. And a lot of that has occurred. But so recall that the Bill of Rights was originally applied against the federal government only to protect the states. Now, later on, really with the 14th Amendment, the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, we're going to go ahead at this point and apply those protections against the states as well. And that made sense because that way, that way the, you know, Virginia couldn't violate the rights of citizens from New York and vice versa. And, you know, it, it makes sense that Virginia shouldn't be able to violate the rights of its own citizens. And not all of those uh, Bill of Rights have been applied to the states, though they all should be and hopefully will be at some point. So the 14th Amendment, like I said, is a very complicated issue, but that contains a clause called the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And that is where this travel ban was struck down fairly easily in Kentucky. Um, so if you look at the ruling in Kentucky, the court said after careful review, the court concludes that the travel ban does not pass constitutional must muster. The restriction restrictions infringe on the basic right of citizens to engage in interstate travel and they carry with them criminal penalties. The constitutional right to travel from one state to another is firmly embedded in our jurisprudence. Indeed, the right is virtually unconditional. Um, so the constitutional right to travel from one state to another occupies a position of fundamental to the concept, concept of our federal union. It's a right that has been firmly established and repeatedly recognized. So that's some of the case law that the, the federal Supreme Court did. But it was, it's very, very, very well established that citizens in our country have the right to travel between the states. 
doesn't mean that it never can be restricted, but any restrictions fall under um, um, a very detailed scrutiny where they have to be very, very narrowly tailored and they have to be basically the re least restrictive as possible. And as the Kentucky court pointed out, even the Kentucky restrictions could have been much uh, less restrictive. And it, it illustrated that point by pointing out a number of scenarios where that order would apply that really are not just unconstitutional, but ridiculous. So, and a lot of those apply here because we're a neighbor to Kentucky when we share a border. So the court you know, noted that one person who works or lives in Covington, Kentucky would violate that order by taking a walk on the suspension bridge to the Ohio side and turning around walking back since the state border is several yards from the Ohio Riverbank. That would apply in any number of places in, in West Virginia, you know, Point Pleasant, Huntington, Wheeling, uh, Parkersburg. Number two, a person who lives in Covington, Kentucky, could visit a friend in Florence, Kentucky, roughly eight miles away, without violating the executive orders. But if she visited another friend in Milford, Ohio, about the same distance from Covington, she would violate the executive orders and have to be quarantined on her return to Kentucky. Both of these trips would be on the expressway when it involved the same negligible risk of contracting the virus. Another good point, another point that would apply in West Virginia and against uh, Governor Justice's proposed travel ban. Um, number three, family members, some of whom live in northern Kentucky and some in Cincinnati less than a mile away, would be prohibited from visiting each other even if social distancing and other regulations were observed. Also would apply in West Virginia. Number four, checkpoints would have to be set up at the entrances to the many bridges connecting Kentucky to other states. The I-75 bridge connecting Kentucky to Ohio is one of the busiest bridges in the nation. Massive traffic jams would result. Quarantine facilities would have to be set up by the state to accommodate the hundreds, if not thousands, of people who would have to be quarantined. Same thing with West Virginia. I mean, you just look at the I-77 coming up from Virginia and uh, in Mercer County. Um, I mean, look at look how many cars pass through there every day up the West Virginia Turnpike. Um, are they going to set up uh, concentration camps where they where they house people who have have uh, left the state and come back in and keep them there for 14 days, check them whether they want to or not? Same appoints apply here as, as in uh, the Kentucky court order. Uh, number five, people from states north of Kentucky would have to be quarantined if they stopped from passing through Kentucky on the way to Florida or other southern destinations. So again, here, how many people from, from uh, Ohio or beyond travel through West Virginia on their way to, let's say, Myrtle Beach or Florida? Um, same thing. So, I mean, they, they, you know, Governor Justice would not just be affecting, you know, West Virginia residents, but could be affecting any number of, of uh, American citizens who have the fundamental right to travel within the country. And number six, and lastly, the judge brought up the point, who is going to provide all the facilities to do all the quarantining? So all of the points that were used by the federal judge in the Kentucky lawsuit also apply here. And if Governor Justice were to do that, this would be a piece of cake federal lawsuit 
um, it would be a violation of the 14th Amendment um, Privileges and Immunities Clause. And uh, what am I looking for? And you know what? The thing about federal court is, is when he loses that case, when he loses that case, there's gonna, he's going to be on the hook for attorney fees under federal law. So, um, you know, who's going to be paying for that in the end? Probably not him. So is does he not is he not aware of what happened in Kentucky? Is he not aware of the right to travel under the Constitution, or just does he not care? Based on his past conduct, I would argue he probably doesn't care. Uh, so the right to travel, um, it's, I found this old uh, law review article, and it had some really good background on the history. For all the great purposes for which the federal government was formed, we are one people with one common country. We are all citizens of the United States and as members of the community must have the right to pass and repass through every part of it without interruption as freely as in our own states. Now, that was from an 1849 Supreme Court of the United States case. That was from Smith v. Turner known as the passenger cases. And it just puts it all into one phrase. Um, it's not just the right to cross into Virginia or Kentucky or Maryland or Pennsylvania and come back for whatever reason we, we have, none of which are the government's business, but it's about the actual foundation of our country. Oh, somebody said, Somebody said, I wonder if he quarantines his guests at the resort. You know what? I highly doubt that. And that's one of the ironies of this whole thing is that he owns a resort in my local community here where he's bringing people in from New York, New Jersey. And you know what? I've, I've, I've had at least one client who is believed to have contracted coronavirus from somebody brought in from New Jersey or New York and a group at that resort. Um, you know, and it, it would be a good question to, to, to know whether or not the, the people in there paying big bucks to stay at that resort are walking around with a mask on. I bet you they're not. I bet you they're not. So 1849 Supreme Court case. I mean, when you can go back to 1849, I mean, you really did not do your homework if you didn't know that this was unconstitutional. So freedom of travel. Um, it's violating the freedom of travel is a violation of the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, also a denial of equal protection of the law as guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Uh, freedom of movement, movement encompasses three separate individual rights. One, the right to leave your present location and go elsewhere. Two, the right to travel without deterrence across various boundaries. And three, the right to settle in a place of your choice and remain there.
So this, what I'm quoting from is, is an old law review article. It's from, when I say old, it's, it's 1969 from the Kentucky Law Journal, ironically, called Constitutional Protection for Freedom of Movement, A Time for Decision by Sheldon Elliott Steinbach. And I'll, I'll post a link on my blog um, to this specific law review article if you want to read it. I just kind of pulled it here at the, at the last second, but it's got, it, it was decided before a lot of these right to travel cases were finally taken up by the Supreme Court. So it, it goes through a lot of these old um, debates and laws and explains why there's a right to travel and what it is. Um, so it's very clear that there's a right to travel um, out of West Virginia and back into West Virginia again. And it would be a violation of that to search and seize um, or put any restrictions on that travel. And, uh, you know, if yeah, I, would, I would have a hard time believing that that he would do that, even though he threatened it. But but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have believed if I could go back in time and tell myself that he's done what he's done so far. Uh, so secondly, Another thing that, that I want to, to bring up is, as of last night, I believe that uh, my good friend and client, Delegate Marshall Wilson, has gotten himself on the ballot to challenge Governor Jim Justice in the November gubernatorial election for West Virginia. And if you followed any of my stuff on Facebook, You've seen that I've brought this up several times. He needed 7,200 signatures because he was he was a uh, Republican um, and he switched to the independent party. Well, I don't know that it's a party. He just switched to independent status based on, I think, in part, a lot of, of what he was seeing the governor do. And he was the main plaintiff in our writ of mandamus petition challenging Governor Justice's executive orders to the Supreme Court. And like I said, ultimately we lost, but we got a great um, conversation started and it has developed a lot of steam. And we, we are seriously considering continuing with that lawsuit. And I'll discuss probably some of that tomorrow when I'm on uh, Dave Allen's radio show on West Virginia Metro News. And that'll be around 9.40 or so tomorrow morning. So uh, again, that's uh, West Virginia Metro News with uh, Dave Allen. It's before Hoppy comes on around 9.38, 9.40. And hopefully I'll have uh, some good stuff to say about what we're going to do. Obviously, my client, um, Mr. Uh, Delegate Wilson, had been very busy crisscrossing the state gathering signatures. And I just think it's, it's amazing that, so you look at, to get on the ballot, for governor as an independent, both parties, that's maybe the one thing that they could agree on is, is uh, they want to make it difficult for an independent candidate to come into an election and screw everything up. So they've set the bar very high. Now, not so high that it would get struck down by the courts, but high as they thought that they could get it. So where it was set was it's 7,200 signatures required. Now, these are hard copy signatures of registered West Virginia voters, and, and it has to be on a separate form for each county. And they have to put their, you know, it's not just you sign your name. You have to sign your name. You have to put your date of birth. You have to put your address and all that stuff. And they have to be hard copy signatures, and, and it had to be delivered 
to the Secretary of State's office by yesterday. So he was here at my office uh, when he came through Union uh, on Sunday, and I had breakfast with him at Dolly's Diner in Princeton earlier that morning. And and um, he, I think he had gotten, you know, 300 signatures um, from one particular um, woman who was out collecting signatures for him. And there, there have been people literally all over the state, all 55 counties, working together, a real grassroots effort to try to get all of these 7,200 signatures together, hard copy, in Marshall's hands to be delivered by him to the Secretary of State last night. And from from what I saw on with his Facebook post last night and again this morning, I believe that he has done it, that he has done it. And I think there's a 10 day period where the secretary of state's office has to validate all these signatures, which I assume just means to make sure that they're all actual real people, registered voters and not just, you know, made up names. And I don't doubt that, that all of these are going to be verified. And so it's, it looks like he has actually gotten, well, we and his, his supporters have gotten him on the ballot um, running against Governor Jim Justice in November. And so that bar to entry, that price of admission was designed for a regular election year. Can you imagine trying to do that in today's climate when people are ordered to stay at home, to not be around other human beings, to stay behind masks, to not have any gatherings of, of, 25 people or more or any gatherings at all and where people are public publicly shamed if they do have any sort of gathering or party in that environment imagine getting together 7200 signatures and you know what it's it, I do have a degree in political science I've worked on political campaigns and I, I got to work with the the actual campaign team in the early 2000s that did all of George W. Bush's TV commercials in Florida. And I, I got to spend like a week with them creating, you know, commercials and talking to people. And, uh, you know, it's hard anyways. One of the hardest, most difficult things to do is to ask for a candidate to ask somebody to vote for them. It's, it, it's counterintuitive, but it's not easy to do. And it's even more difficult, I can guarantee you, to go up to somebody and ask them to sign a petition to get them on um, a ballot to run against, you know, somebody that they had voted for. So it's not easy. It wasn't easy to get those signatures. And it means that if, if it's happened, that is a grassroots effort that just blows my mind. I haven't seen you know, outside of maybe, you know, the Tea Party or something like that. And that was before we're, what we're into now with, with our new normal where everything is suppressed. People are, are kept away from each other. Um, independent thought is suppressed. Free thinking is suppressed. Even the, the media, the government, everybody is trying to put, they're promoting tribalism. We're going, they're trying to put us backwards in history where we're supposed to only identify with those who are who look like us or who can't come from the same country that, that we came from.
And that's completely antithetical to what America is about. Um, it's antithetical to our political process. And this is maybe just one of the, you know, a, a, a small shining light, a, a rose surrounded by thorns um, in everything that's going on now. But since all this crazy stuff has happened in 2020, why not? Why can't Delegate Marshall Wilson be elected governor as an independent? I think the time is right. You know, Jim Justice ran as a Democrat. Then he switched parties. I mean, he pissed them all off, no doubt. And now he's a Republican, but he's still a Democrat in many people's eyes. And then you look at the conservative folks with all these executive orders. Um, I mean, he he has acted. And, and where is my, my graphic here? Here he is. That, that is who is running the state of West Virginia right now. So where is his support base? If it's not just people... On his payroll, employees, I, I, I don't know who it is. Who supports the man? It's kind of like Joe Biden. Yeah, there's a lot of people against Trump, but who who is out there extolling the virtues of, of Joe Biden? I don't know that I've heard any. Who's out there extolling the virtues of, of Governor Jim Justice? Has he defended the Constitution in any way? No, he's violated it in, in many, many different ways. Um, so... You know, I'm sure a lot of people think that he's kept us safe. Maybe he has. Here we go right back again to the point of all this. Freedom is scary. Um, <clears throat> I've often brought up the example. And if you want everybody to wear a mask and you don't want anybody to smoke pot, you don't want any options for anybody to do drugs, you want complete safety, there's a perfect place for you. It's, it's over on the other side of the world, but it's very safe. And that place is called Singapore. And if, if you don't believe me, look up Singapore. Um, Singapore, they have the death penalty for things like possession of marijuana. You're probably pretty safe in Singapore. You know, if you want to be safe from, from marijuana, that is probably the place to be. Somebody said, some, some uh, leftists I was arguing with on Facebook said, you know what, Singapore has, you know, all their citizens are wearing masks. I said, yeah, of, of course. They have the death penalty for marijuana possession. I can't imagine what type of death you face for not wearing a mask. So, you know, for all the people that accuse, get accused of being fascists, that that has nothing to do with that. You know, freedom is on the other end of the scale. Um, so freedom is not Singapore. That is the opposite of freedom. Yes, a lot of people would call that right wing in many ways, but that has nothing to do with freedom. You know, it's not just a left versus right thing. Freedom should be a bipartisan issue. And it should apply to many different ideologies. But freedom will always come with risk. It will always come with people who are scared because freedom is scary. So one of the things that Jim Justice said is that this is the event of our lifetimes. And maybe, it, maybe, maybe if we're looking at viruses, maybe it is if we look at the numbers on a worldwide scale. Um, but this has happened very worse before. And what I want to get into, I have a little bit of time left, is the Great Plague of 1918. 
and I found this really cool old article. Well, again, old, 1968. I don't know that this is available anywhere else um, on what happened from at least uh, 1968 historian's view. But let's look at the current numbers as of today for COVID-19 in West Virginia. Um, my county now, Monroe County, I believe has zero cases, zero cases, zero deaths. Um, and it looks like there's, there's a lot of counties in the same, same, uh, zero case category, Pocahontas, Webster County, Upshur County, Roan County, Calhoun County, Ritchie County, Work County, Tyler County, um, Preston County, Morgan County. And then there are others that have like one or two. So, so, uh, there's a couple hot spots in the state. One is Mercer County, Kanawha County, Logan County, Cabell County, and Monongahela County. Those are really the only bad spots in the entire state. Everywhere else, I mean, it seems to be, um, you know, no problem. I know here, here uh, in my area, I mean, you wouldn't even know necessarily. I don't think anybody is is uh, complying with the uh, so-called mask mandate. But Anyways, justice said that this is the event of our lifetimes. And, um, you know, this, this has just never been seen before. And I brought up in our lawsuit to the Supreme Court that, you know what, of course this has happened before. This has been a part of the human history, the human experience of, of you know, getting sick and dying. And there, there have been many, you know, great plagues. People used to die of cholera on, on a daily basis. We've dealt with polio. We've... we've We've uh, we've had tuberculosis. I mean, we've had all sorts of stuff. But but um, the the closest thing really that we can look at from a history standpoint is what happened in 1918, and that's the so-called Spanish flu. So this is from an article found it in American History Illustrated, and it's just an old book that I had in my library, and the article is Great Plague of 1918. And you can see the the uh, people wearing masks there, 1918. And there's a lot to be learned by what happened by looking back at 1918. Because a lot of these laws, these emergency laws, they were written after this happened. So if they didn't mention a flu influenza or a flu pandemic, um, they could have because they had experienced it. So... Um, this is an article by Irwin Ross, and he writes, On the fine autumn hazy morning of September 7th, 1918, an enlisted man of Company D, 42nd Infantry, in training at Camp Devens, Massachusetts, reported to the regimental infirmary with a sore throat, fever, and severe pains in his back. He was sent to the base hospital for observation. Next day, same company, same regiment, 12 more soldiers appeared with similar symptoms. By the 16th, 37 men of Company D were in the hospital and one had died. By then, the, the, the uh, disease had been diagnosed as influenza and was spreading rapidly throughout the cantonment. Two days later, 600 men were sent to bed and the dead were piling up in neatly stacked coffins in the quartermaster's sheds. By September 20th, medical officers knew they had real trouble. On that day, 1,543 cases. Such was the start in the United States of the most savage epidemic this country has ever known. 
Every fourth man in army camps in the United States came down with influenza. Every 24th man developed pneumonia and every 67th man died. Pathologists called it pandemic influenza. Before it ran its course, it brought death to 548,452 Americans, both soldiers and civilians. Uh, it had a worldwide toll of 21,642,000. It came without warning and killed suddenly and spread explosively. So here, there's if you look at the numbers, the majority of deaths that we've had in West Virginia, which all deaths are tragic, but the majority have been elderly people and mostly, or at least last time I checked, in nursing homes. And... And uh, here in the 1918 pandemic, we had we had soldiers, young soldiers being their bodies piled up in, in the army camps. So this was this was killing everybody. And you look at the media coverage now. Well, listen to this about the media coverage then. Um, Mr. Ross continues. It may seem odd that at the time, this most terrible epidemic of modern times received so little attention in the press. There is only fleeting mention of it, if any at all, in, any, in, in history books. In a way, however, this is not surprising. The disease reached its peak in September, October, and November of 1918, when after four years of war, the Allied armies were battering down the last of the German defenses. And at such time, there was little interest in anything but, new, but news from the front. So they were literally defeating the Nazis and dealing with the, the uh, Spanish influenza at the same time. And the media was actually covering us killing the Nazis instead of, of the pandemic. Can you imagine how that would be reversed today? Again, that would be an entirely different video. But the damage was awful in American cities from this pandemic. In Philadelphia, in one day, in mid-October, 650 people died. Authorities appealed for volunteer grave diggers, volunteer nurses, retired doctors. More than one-third of the city's physicians were themselves in bed. Hospital conditions were nightmarish. Wards for 30 persons were jammed with as many as 70 people, half of them dying. In one 60-bed ward, 60 corpses lay unremoved for several hours. When the day nurses came on duty, they would find new faces in beds where others had died during the night. There was a shortage, sudden shortage of coffins, and a Philadelphia car manufacturing firm converted its shops into a coffin factory. So can you imagine if we had those facts with today's media and today's politicians? We have seen worse before. And this is really interesting. He writes, now the era of the white mask began. Does that sound familiar? Public health authorities convinced that the plague was spread by people coming together endorsed, endorsed the wearing of white cotton gauze masks. Cities and towns took on the look of Never Neverland as masked barbers tried to shave masked faces. Masked dentists worked through two layers of gauze and streetcar conductors looking like Kleagles collected fares from writers who looked like Klansmen. This precaution seemed to have no effect on the death rate. Nothing did. So what does that tell us? We've tried the mask thing before. Everybody wore a mask. 
they wore a mask and their businesses were not shut down at that time by by their governors, by their by any of their politicians. It we had a barber in West Virginia arrested in the Eastern Panhandle for refusing to shut down pursuant to the governor's order. But back in 1918, in a, in a much worse pandemic, the barbers were, were wearing masks, cutting people's hair, who, and they were wearing masks. And still it did nothing. And the authorities at the time, that they were looking for, and, and it's like the hydro, hydroxychloroquine um, debate, which I believe I myself have taken it before, uh, being a, an RA sufferer myself. And, uh, you know, I don't remember any politician, you know, trying to stop me from taking it or having any concern whatsoever of, of whether I took hydroxychloroquine. Anyways, back to my point, back at the time, um, they thought maybe it was alcohol that, that could have some effect on it. A prominent British physician declared consumption of alcohol is at least as efficient, a preventative of, as any drug. And then all over England, the pubs displayed public notices. Quote, he who avoids flu performs a public service. London's barflies drank deep and joyously in the full consciousness of civic virtue. But up in backwoods Canada, a country doctor took the opposing view, urging his patients to, quote, lay off the whiskey and medicine, go to bed and stay there and keep bowels and windows open. So they, we have the hydroxychloroquine debate. They had the alcohol debate. Um but in those cases in 1918, um, the people were debating, the people were choosing what they wanted to do. There was no being forced by the government. The government then was not taking advantage of a crisis like politicians have since learned to do and making a power grab. Um, in fact, the Spanish influenza was so bad that for the first time in U.S. history, all Coast Guard stations along the eastern seaboard went out of commission. For 16 days in November of 1918, all crews were laid up with the influenza. Um, and as you can see, they were also back in 1918, look, they were holding pub, where is it? public hearings outside. There they are, they're having court outside. So we faced this before. Um, we did not change our way of life to a quote, new normal then. Um, our emergency power statute in West Virginia was written long after this occurred. And we had the, these same issues in West Virginia. We had deaths in West Virginia. Our emergency powers contemplate wildfires, earthquakes, um, floods especially, and they allow for the governor on an emergency basis to go in and control people who come and go from that disaster area or control people, you know, premises, premises, premises in that disaster area. That was what in good faith, the legislature allowed the governor to do under his emergency powers. And really that was to lift restrictions, to take a 300 occupancy limit building and, 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 and take the, take the occupancy limit out so that we could, put refugees in there that, you know, we could stop people from going down a flooded road. That is the express powers that the governor was given on an emergency basis. But 
what our tyrannical governor has done and many other governors have done across the country is they took that little bit of authorization and they ran with it, just declared the entire damn state a disaster area. Now, I read through all the counties, including mine, that have zero cases right now after five months of coronavirus. Still, each of those counties, including mine, is still a de declared state of emergency disaster zone. So he just declared the entire state disaster zone. And since he gets to control ingress and egress coming and going from a disaster zone and the occupancy of premises in that disaster zone, well, that means he gets to just run the entire state, right? Tell any of us where we can go, where we can't go, what businesses can stay open, which businesses can't stay open. No, it says none of that, none of that whatsoever. Now, the legislature does need to go back and rewrite those emergency powers to explicitly say that this is not happening again. These are the limited powers. But just because they didn't say that the first go around, it doesn't mean that the governor gets to do whatever he wants. He's still limited by the Constitution. And our state constitution, read it. It's really well written. And it actually says that this constitution will never be suspended, even in a time of war. Um, okay, so I'm pretty much out of time. It's 101. I've got to go, but I, I really appreciate um, you watching. Visit my blog at thecivilrightslawyer.com. And um, you can read the article and the Kentucky case, which I, I posted to this. Uh, you can send me emails at uh, jhb at johnbryanlaw.com. And uh, remember to follow the guidelines. Again, I encourage all businesses that are allowed to open to do so only if they can follow the guidelines to keep West Virginia safe.